0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy mcphee Olabest. From the very beginning of this project, it has been my belief that the unjust construct of patriarchy causes harm to people of all genders, including men. Today, it's my delight and my honor to be joined by a deep and generous thinker, Bob Reese, who's going to help us unpack some specifics of both how patriarchy can painfully impact men, as well as some of the ways that men and patriarchs, even, can act as our allies in this work of dismantling oppressive structures. Along the way, Bob will be reciting his poetry, offering thoughtful insight, and reflecting on his personal history surrounding trauma and abuse. We're so excited to be sharing Bob's story with you. Listeners might want to know that this segment will include some challenging content such as sexual abuse, self-harm, and violence. So please consider if this material might affect you and take care of yourselves accordingly. Now to introduce our guest. Professor Robert A. Reese is an activist, scholar, poet, and humanitarian. He is a visiting professor and director of Mormon Studies at Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, and previously he taught at UCLA, UC Santa Cruz, and UC Berkeley. He is the co-founder of the Bountiful Children's Foundation, which addresses malnutrition among Latter-day Saint children in the developing world. Welcome, Bob Reese.
1: this is Bob Reese. Uh, For the past 10 years, I've been the director of Mormon Studies and a visiting professor at Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. Before that, I taught at UC Santa Cruz and UCLA. And one of my other really great passions is that I am the co-founder and current vice president of the Bountiful Children's Foundation, a nonprofit foundation that addresses malnutrition among Latter-day Saints and other children in the developing world. Currently, we're in 18 countries, from Mongolia to Madagascar, and from Peru to the Philippines. And it's joyful work. Uh, Welcome any of you who want to find out about it to go to our website, bountifulchildren.org, and you can learn about that. Today, I'm very happy to be having the opportunity to talk about patriarchy in a personal way. My remarks are called Patriarchy and Me, a Personal Perspective. Uh, this has given me a wonderful opportunity to do a lot of self-evaluation and deep thought about how patriarchy has influenced my life. Even before I was born, my life was shaped by patriarchy in both general and specific ways. In a general sense, it began millennia ago when recognizing their superior physical strength and freedom from childbearing, men began to lord it over and dominate women, exercise control over property and capital, and when they were threatened by the mystery and power of feminine deities, began to insist on the exclusivity and superiority of masculine deities. This heritage was influenced by the generations of men from primitive times to the present, who continued those ancient imbalances, enmities, inequities, and injustices. In a specific sense, patriarchy in my life began during my infancy, gained prominence during my formative years, and left a shadow as an adult I've had to acknowledge and address. Let me explain. My mother, Onia Marie Hardin, was always something of an enigma to me. Although I didn't always live with her growing up, I witnessed her being abused and bullied by the men in her life, including my father and a series of stepfathers. While she wanted to be a good mother, poverty, alcoholism and depression inhibited her from being so. She abandoned my brother and me when I was an infant and again when I was eight. I never lived with her after that and saw her infrequently. It was only until after her death at age 50 that I learned the reason for her brokenness. On a visit to Colorado to visit my maternal grandmother and aunt, I learned that my mother had been sexually abused by her father, starting when she was a young girl and lasting into her teenage years. Thus, even before she had a chance to fully develop emotionally. Her psyche was deeply damaged. With that revelation, my mother's life suddenly made sense to me for the first time. Later, after seeing a photograph of her with her high school class, I wrote the following poem. It's called Ona. That's her standing somewhat stiffly with the others in Rye, Colorado, the year of the Great Depression. Her cousin Mavis is there, too, third girl from the left. She looks more poised than my mother, who stands in a corner, her passive face lit like a cameo. By this time, her father was already fondling her breasts, which are just beginning to show beneath the cotton midi she wears with a sailor collar. He caught her in the barn where they milked the cows and in the creamery when she made butter. At 14, she was sent to live with her Aunt Ida in Cortez, making the trip over Wolf Creek Pass on the darkest day of the year. Two years later, she and my father ran away to Monticello to get married. When she was seven months pregnant with me, her second child, she drank a bottle of blue poison. Her second husband shot a woman, then cut his own throat with a razor. Her third husband died in a fire a year after he raped her. For a while she lived with an ex-convict and then married a guy named Burchill O. Eden. Her fifth marriage was her own daughter's third husband. Not long before she died of heart failure and he was killed by a car while crossing the street in Delta, the old man was still pressing her. The other boys and girls in the photograph look innocent, expectant dreaming of girlfriends, boyfriends, basketball, and dresses for the school prom. My mother alone casts the shadow on the pastoral backdrop hung clumsily by the photographer who cannot see what she knows and can never tell anyone, especially her classmates, standing so full of promise before the black one-eyed box. My grandfather's unforgivable and violent abuse of his role as father, nurturer, and protector deeply wounded my mother and therefore also wounded me. The absence of a mother left me feeling like a motherless child. That feeling was deepened by having three stepmothers, none of whom was nurturing in the way I needed, and one of whom was both physically and emotionally abusive. I later came to understand that she also had been abused by her first husband. Whereas my stepmothers were either abusive or indifferent, my stepfathers were often violent with both my mother and her children. My mother's second husband was an abusive man. While still married to my mother, he either murdered a woman and committed suicide or, more likely, was a victim of a double murder. My mother's third husband raped her, while her three children, ages five, seven, and nine, were in an adjacent room. It was during this time that I witnessed the woman next door pounding on our door to escape her husband's wrath. Before we could help her, he sprang onto the porch and hit her in the face, knocking her off onto a huge rock where she hit her head. I was witness to that kind of abuse. Alcohol troubled the lives of all of these people in my family and because they troubled the lives of one another and the lives of their children, of the children in their care. In sum, the men in my family were typical of the sexist patriarchal culture in which they were raised and, consequently, in which I was raised. As a boy, I saw both my father and other men verbally and sometimes physically abuse their wives and other women. My sister and two stepsisters were sexually, physically, and emotionally abused by family members. There was almost no sense of equality between the sexes in the various homes in which I grew up. Fathers, grandfathers, uncles, brothers, and cousins wielded masculinity like a weapon. The best thing that could be said of my childhood is that what I experienced caused me to turn away from it and against it although it has taken years and much conscious effort to shed the negative masculine modeling I witnessed growing up and its effect on my development. Ironically, it was also a patriarch who helped me in doing so. In the Mormon Church, there's an ordinance called a patriarchal blessing. In this practice, a high priest who has been specifically called and set apart as a patriarch give special individual blessings to members of the church, somewhat in the way that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob gave blessings to their sons, although notably not their daughters. Latter-day Saints believe patriarchs have unique gifts that allow them to look into the souls of those they bless and even to see into their futures. When I was 15, my father and his second wife divorced because my father was estranged from the church some friends from my local congregation took me to mesa to meet a patriarch alma davis who was a complete stranger after a few minutes of getting acquainted he laid his hands on my head and said the following words the lord has blessed you with very sensitive feelings be thankful for these sensitive feelings dear brother And at times when you have been sorely hurt and have wished you were not so easily touched and hurt in your feelings, be thankful for them. These sensitive feelings will lead you into paths of truth and righteousness. And seeking after the finer and better things of life, great will be your joy and happiness. Dear brother, let your experiences of the past be as a teacher to you, to teach you those things that are worthwhile those things that are worthy, and the finer and better things of life is contrasted against those things which confuse, those things which tear down, those things which take the joy out of life. Dear brother, put these things behind you. The Lord blesses you to go forward. There was certainly nothing in my family culture or experience that could have been classified as the finer and better things of life. In fact, Even as he said these words, they had very little meaning to me as a 15-year-old boy. But the patriarch's blessing became even more specific and surprising, because he admonished me to, quote, develop these beautiful gifts and talents with which God has blessed you, the beautiful in music, the beautiful in thought, the beautiful in literature, and the higher and finer things of life, end of quote all of which was as foreign to me as Greek or Latin. And yet, as it turns out, these are the very things that have defined and characterized my life, both personally and professionally, for the past 65 years. As I look back on my life, I can see that the most important turning point happened when I was 10, and my father just returned from the Second World War, Where he had been badly wounded, rescued my brother and me from the foster home where we had been placed when our mother had abandoned us. Related to that was my father's recent conversion to Christianity, specifically Mormonism, which led to my learning for the first time about God and Jesus and what Latter-day Saints refer to as the Restoration, which was a series of Theophanies, Revelations, and other experiences that led to the establishment of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormon Church. That gave me, for the first time in my life, both a stable grounding and a safe and nurturing place to go to, even if only on Sundays. It also gave me the conviction, again, for the first time in my life, that I was loved unconditionally. That conviction, which has never left me, has been an enormous stabilizing influence in my life. Although I was only 10 when all these new ideas and possibilities poured into my young mind and heart, they constituted, as I look back, an awareness that they were good and true and beautiful, and that they were like roses blossoming in the Sahara of my spiritual life. As I have grown in my spiritual understanding, and as I have sought to become a true disciple of Jesus, I become increasingly aware of two important things relating to patriarchy. First, I am a privileged white American male. And second, as such, I have a responsibility to make the world more and more equal and more equitable, including in relation to the imbalances between men and women. I recognize that my Latter-day Saint maleness has given me special privilege. As a holder of an all-male priesthood, I've held many positions of power and authority and been given many rich opportunities and experiences not available to women. That in turn has led me to be increasingly aware of the imbalances of power between Latter-day Saint men and other men, and between Latter-day Saint men and women. Religious institutions, especially those with a dominant male ecclesiastical authority structure, may be particularly vulnerable to the abuses of patriarchy. I have certainly experienced that in my own faith tradition, where bishops, state presidents, and other leaders at times invoke their authority and power to silence opinions or positions with which they disagree or of which they disapprove. At times this can lead, as it has on occasion for me, to ecclesiastical abuse, including censure and sanctions. Such actions can be injurious to those subject to them. I cite just one example. During Proposition 8 in California, I found myself unable to support the church's position, having worked for several decades with the LGBT community ministering to and trying to help them in their relationship with the church. Because my leader saw that as opposition to the church, he silenced me for an entire year. It was an interesting experience as I went to church where I had held positions, where I taught, where I did many things. For an entire year, I sat in the congregation allowed only to sing songs and to say amen to prayers. One of the beautiful things in sitting there Sunday after Sunday is it helped me to identify with others, especially women, who have often had to be silent. I have also been negatively impacted by patriarchy in society, in the academic world where I've spent my entire professional life I've encountered superiors and some not so superior who have taken an arbitrary, discriminatory, and punitive position in regard to me. That is also true in other arenas such as healthcare and business. I also recognize that at times I have suffered from the same patriarchal proclivities. Having been a university professor and administrator for 60 years, I recognize that I have a tendency to talk more than I listen to be authoritative in my opinions, and to feel I always have something important to say. I could likely be grouped with those men Rebecca Solnit had in mind in her essay, men explain things to me. Recently, I've come to recognize that this tendency is also rooted in my patriarchal past, since as a child, I often found myself having to explain or talk myself out of situations that I perceived as hurtful or potentially dangerous. While I wasn't often successful, I became very adept at explaining the ways of Bob, or in those days of Bobby, to everyone. The second most important influence in my life after Jesus and my religious community has been my good fortune of being married to two extraordinary women. Ruth Stanfield and Gloria Gardner, both of whom have challenged my patriarchal proclivities, attitudes, and behaviors, been generous in forgiving my chauvinism, taught me how to see the world through their eyes to whatever extent that is possible, and most important, have taught me how better to love, to love them, others, and myself, and ongoing work I expect to last to the end of my life. When Ruth Sandfield and I got married in 1961, we were both in graduate school at the University of Wisconsin. As a newly married couple, we were warned by church leaders about using contraception, otherwise delaying starting our family. One church apostle admonished, quote, Those who practice birth control are running counter to the foreordained plan of the Almighty. They are in rebellion against God and are guilty of gross wickedness. He added, those who practice birth control will reap disappointment by and by, end of quote. Given today's cultural and social values, it's hard to imagine a church leader giving similar counsel today or to young couples following it. Since Ruth and I both strove to be obedient, we followed the counsel, which resulted in Ruth getting pregnant on our honeymoon. As it turned out, we had three children by the time I finished my graduate studies. Ruth, who was a brilliant scholar and who had a prestigious fellowship, never finished her PhD. Although we had been eager to begin our family, we both regretted that we didn't stay until she too had completed her degree. Later, when our children were in school, Ruth enrolled in the Doctor of Musical Arts program at USC but then interrupted her studies once more, this time to care for her and my elderly parents. That decision, too, was influenced by patriarchy. One of the unfortunate results of what, in retrospect, were the effects of a patriarchal system was Ruth's struggle with depression. I believe her emotional and mental state would have been much happier and healthier had we exercised the common sense in relation to family planning, and other matters that many young Latter-day Saint couples do today. After 51 years of marriage, Ruth passed away in 2012. Six years later, I had the good fortune of marrying Gloria Gardner. Like nearly all women, Gloria, too, has been negatively impacted by patriarchy. And also, like many women, she has transformed such experiences with courage, humility, and the persistence to awaken within herself authenticity. Gloria is a forthright and loving wife, teaching me with calm practicality how better to relate to her and to other women, as well as to men and children. One of the really beautiful blessings of my life are the two daughters Ruth and I raised, Jenny and Anna. I see in them many of the same gifts and strengths their mother possessed. They are strong, independent, competent women, and each has taught and continues to teach me to recognize my privilege and to be less patriarchal. I see these same gifts and virtues that my daughters have in Gloria's two daughters, Ari and Zoe, and in our granddaughters. Gloria and I are both grateful. And our sons and grandsons belong to a generation more enlightened in relation to patriarchy than our own was. Thankfully, there are such things as enlightenment, the courage to change, emotional, mental, and spiritual evolution, and therefore hope for the future. One of the ameliorating influences on my own misguided behaviors and expressions of patriarchy has been the revelation that I have an actual loving mother in heaven. One of the most glorious doctrines that Joseph Smith taught. I believe her expanding influence in my life has made me more aware of the beauty, power, and necessity of the feminine, of the unique qualities inherent in women, and of the potential for the masculine and feminine to become blended, integrated, and unified into both a mortal and a divine wholeness. The intimation of this revelation came first to me nearly 30 years ago. On September 12, 1993, I was attending services at All Saints Episcopal Church in Pasadena, California. The sermon that day was delivered by a woman, the Reverend Kristen Neely. She spoke movingly of finding God's love through small acts of Christian charity. For some reason, while she was speaking, I kept thinking of my mother, who had been dead for over 20 years. Because my mother had been sexually abused as a child, we all felt a giant absence in our hearts because of her wounded heart and soul. When Reverend Neely's sermon was ended, All of the congregants said the prayers of the people, which began with Reverend Neely addressing deity. Holy God, Father, Mother, Friend, your spirit is alive in the earth. Thank you for your loving presence within us. The service ended with the minister and the people saying in unison, Holy God, Father, Mother, Friend, may we be agents of your healing love and justice. Amen. As that prayer ended, I had what I have come to recognize as a certain witness of the Spirit, a conveyance to my soul of truth. I recognized at that moment that my dear wounded mother had been made whole by our heavenly mother in the eternal worlds, and further, that my heavenly mother, along with my earthly mother, would in those worlds fill up the absence in my heart which I always felt from my own mother's inability to love me as I needed and sometimes desperately wanted to be loved. I count the experiences of that Sunday among the most blessed ones of my life. I find it an evidence of the restoration of all things that contemporary men and women are experiencing the reality, the intimacy of our Heavenly Mother. While there is some patriarchal resistance to her, I venture that no power on earth can prevent or impede the continuing revelation of this heavenly being's presence in our lives. As Terrell and Fiona Givens argue in their new book, All Things New, Sin, Salvation, and Everything in Between, quote, Heavenly Mother's emergence out of obscurity changes everything profoundly, End of quote. As I wrote in an essay on Heavenly Mother many years ago, I would like to suggest that as individuals and as a church, we open our hearts and minds, awaken our imaginations to the possibilities that our Heavenly Mother holds for us, including helping us to counter the effects of patriarchy. Let us celebrate her elevated place in our theology and teach others about her. Surely many women and men and this godless world might find their way back to the light through this goddess of all the worlds, of quote. I recognize that I still have important work to do with regard to patriarchy. What I have come to believe in is the possibility that we can all work towards seeing one another as our heavenly parents see us as alike and undifferentiated to them in terms of our potential, value, and worth, yet distinctive in our paths, our gifts, and talents. That work is our shared calling as human beings. As long as one man feels superior to one woman, or one boy claims he is smarter than one girl, as long as one woman feels she must seek shelter from an abusive male, As long as one girl or woman is sold into sexual slavery, as long as one father of an infant daughter is disappointed in her not being a boy, as long as one woman is paid less for doing the same work as one man, as long as women are valued for their sexual characteristics rather than revered for all of their characteristics, and as long as we fail to see deity as being both feminine and masculine. In other words, until patriarchy becomes an obsolete and antiquated word, we all, especially men of privilege and power, have essential work to do. The really good news is that such work can be done in, with, and through love. Love can guide, sustain, refresh, and renew us. It can help us overcome our own ignorance, surrender our pride, and shed our outmoded, destructive cultural outlays. Ultimately, love can nourish us as we find ourselves moving closer to one another, and therefore towards the diverse and beautiful oneness we were created and even ordained to become. Thank you.
0: We are so grateful to Professor Robert A. Reese. I was online with him when he recorded this piece and I was on mute while he recorded and I was weeping as he spoke and I cried again listening to it afterwards. I wish there were more men in the LDS church and in the world like him. And I wanna share two more reasons why I respect and admire Bob Reese so very much and why I was so incredibly honored that he wrote and delivered this beautiful piece for us today. First of all, Bob has been openly loving and supportive of LGBTQ folks for probably his whole life, and certainly before it was safe to do so in the LDS church. He has been a shining example of courage and love, and he is my hero for that. And secondly, Bob has been an anti-racist in the LDS church since before that language existed to describe his courage. For listeners who weren't aware, the LDS church prohibited Black members from holding the priesthood or receiving temple ordinances until 1978. And that's not the same as restricting priesthood in like a Catholic model where it only affects a few people who want to become full-time priests. In Mormon theology, if you don't have the priesthood as a man, it impacts everything that you do in the church and even in the home. In Mormon theology, if you don't have temple ordinances, no matter the gender, you can't live with God after this life. You can't live with your family after death. way families can who have temple ordinances, according to the doctrine. So in 1973, a scholar named Lester Bush submitted a historical article to a publication called Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. And this article was a meticulously researched challenge to the church's policy of excluding black people from these saving ordinances. And in retrospect, this article has been recognized as the single most influential factor in getting the church's policy changed in 1978. So listeners, look it up. Look up that Lester Bush article in Dialogue. But here's a little known detail about that. When this article was submitted and it came across the desk of the editor of Dialogue, the editor knew that if he published that article, it could be really incendiary and it could get him excommunicated. And the editor decided to publish it anyway at great personal risk. And it changed the world. And that editor was Bob Reese. So for those reasons, for his LGBTQ allyship and his courageous journalistic integrity and his anti-racism, as well as his feminism and his beautiful mind and heart, Bob Reese is one of my heroes. And he's far too humble to share that information himself. So I decided to go rogue and do it. (laughs) In fact, when I asked if I could share anything about him, he just wanted me to direct you to his initiative to eliminate childhood malnutrition. And that's the Bountiful Children's Foundation, bountifulchildren.org. So please check that out. As always, I want to thank Sam Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Allabest for our social media. And thank you, listeners, for being here week after week. Please share this episode with someone you know, especially if you know any men who might resonate with it. And last of all, I am thrilled to announce another stellar guest on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Next week, we are so excited to air my interview with best selling author Gabrielle Blair, also known as Design Mom. Gabrielle will share her famous Twitter thread on abortion, and then we will discuss reproductive rights, contraceptives, and other feminist topics. It's an absolutely brilliant interview because Gabrielle is absolutely brilliant. So you will not want to miss her next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.